If you brought your Bible, uh, go ahead and open it to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking uh, at chapter 2 today, or most of chapter 2 today, uh, in this series that we've been working through for the last few months, entitled, uh, A People in the Now Longing for the Future. And, And so... Again, uh, as we jump into this time today, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to, this letter by Paul written to this young church, uh, we're going to be looking at how Paul addresses uh, what we've kind of labeled as the second uh, of three threats that are facing this church. So as Paul wrote his first letter, he he sought to encourage this young church that was actually in the face of persecution, was thriving. Uh, so much so uh, that the the testimony or the, the stories about how this church uh, was uh, living out the implications of the gospel in the face of suffering had spread all throughout the region of Macedonia. And so Paul, in his first letter, he is uh, super encouraged. And so he, he, he exhorts them to continue on and then he takes some time to say, hey, here's some things you need to be reminded of. Here's some things uh, that if you could be sharpened in or equipped with. Uh, and so he lays those out in the first letter. But what happens is not long after that letter, maybe weeks, a couple of months, Paul gets a report that the persecution has gotten even worse. And really it's come on, uh, on kind of, or it's affected them in three different ways or three uh, different areas. First, and we looked at it last week, we saw that because this persecution ha- had intensified, that these people who were experiencing it, just like we do when we experience suffering, they begin to question, right? Like a guy, if the gospel is good news, if the hope is found in Jesus and we're doing these things, why are we facing X, Y, and Z, Right? Why are we facing the persecution and suffering that we're facing? And so we're asking this why question, and Paul seeks to answer that. But secondly, what's happened and what we're going to look at today is they've seen these false teachers, uh, probably some of the same false teachers we saw in the first letter, that, that have come forward and they're spreading uh, this, this false truth about the return of Christ. What we see in the text today is that there's even a letter that's been circulating that they're saying it is from Paul, but it's not. And, and that what, what the letter says is that Jesus has already come and they missed it, so they're kind of left out. But then the third threat that we're going to see in the end of the letter is uh, the, these idlers. Those that because all this is happening, they've decided to just kind of throw in the towel and they've stopped working. Uh, and it's really put a burden upon the church. And so Paul is going to address them again at the end of our uh, time in this letter. But last week what we saw was how Paul sought to encourage uh, the church in Thessalonica and us today with the reality of how suffering produces sanctification in our lives And really we see that in three ways because I believe Paul wants us to understand three truths about the gospel. First, we saw that as Paul laid out this reality of suffering and sanctification and kind of the tension that comes with it, it, we saw the depths of God's love in the midst of suffering. That just because we suffer doesn't mean that God does not love us. Secondly, we saw that we live with eternity in view, knowing that Christ will return, that He will redeem, bear judgment, and ultimately make all things new. Then we also saw that God does not, will not, and has not wasted anything. And that He uses even our suffering as an avenue to proclaim the good news through our lives so that His glory might be made known to others. Specifically, What we saw last week was that reality that suffering does sanctify us. 
We don't want it. We shouldn't go out and look for it. But as we experience it, we know that that God is not going to waste it. And that uh, what Paul says that, that we saw last week is that it's actually a mark of our salvation. Not that our suffering saves us, but as we suffer and are sanctified through it, it is a mark for us that, man, uh, of God's love that we experience. Because Jesus didn't say, hey, uh, man, I've come into the world that you could experience, uh, man, nothing but health, wealth, and happiness. Actually, he says, in this world you'll find trouble, but what? Take heart, I've overcome the world. Secondly, what we saw in the text last week was that this suffering is momentary in light of eternity. What that should do for us is not sit back and say, wait, I'm just going to bide my time and wait until they get theirs, those that may are persecuting us, or I'm just going to wait until that escape comes. Actually, what Paul says is it should motivate us to proclaim the good news even to the persecutor. And then lastly, in the midst of suffering, it reflects our sanctification in ways that reveal God's glory. And so we see what, and so what we see is, is what Paul combats in chapter one is really the physical threat of suffering that is creating turmoil in the lives and hearts of God's people. But what we find here in chapter two is that the threat uh, facing this young church and the threats facing our own lives as followers of Jesus often come in two fronts. The physical, Right? So, persecution, uh, suffering, just the day-to-day life in a fallen world, right? Like we experience these moments physically, um, through sickness, through death, through, uh, man, hardship and hurt, through, uh, man, abuse, things like that, we experience it. But then also what we see and what Paul's going to kind of pivot to now is we also feel these threats intellectually or mentally. You see, false teaching, what false teaching does, if I could really define it according to Scripture, is false teaching, really it presents false hope through the proclamation or implementation of a false gospel that distorts Christ, that distorts His bride, the church, and even, as we see today, is going to distort His return in ways that, 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 that seek to mimic Jesus, but in the end only produce a a fear-inducing counterfeit rather than the real thing. Right? So this is what the false gospels, this is what uh, false teaching does. It it tries to say, hey, hey, man, it looks really good, right? Oftentimes, as I've experienced, man, my walk with Jesus is that, man, the enemy's lies, uh, the truth, if the truth is here, the enemy's lies are just kind of right over here. It looks really, really close. Like even Satan, when he, when he tempts Jesus, what does he use? He uses scripture, right? So he's taking a teaching and he's twisting it. And he's trying to make it something it isn't. So we see that all the time. And this is what the church in Thessalonica is experiencing. This is what we're experiencing. At times, man, we're being bombarded with these things. And in the end, man, uh, it only produces fear rather than the hope that's found in Jesus. Like we see it all the time in culture. Things seek to mimic the real thing, right? Like let me uh, just give you an example. So, uh, Dr. Pepper, right? The, the goat, the best drink, you know? Uh, like Dr. Pepper is the real thing. It's, as the kids say today, it's a real one, right? Like it's got it. Like it, it is, it's the best. 
But there's only one Dr. Pepper. And yet, if you go to HEB or go to Walmart, what are you going to find? They're parading around something that's trying to mimic Dr. Pepper, but has no medical license at all, right? Like Dr. B holds no way to Dr. Pepper. And yet what H-E-B, I love H-E-B, okay? Uh, what they try to do is they say, well, this is cheaper and it's just as good. It's not, okay? Like it is not. But they want to mimic and they want to present it in that way. Another place I experience this, you go to Chipotle. Chipotle is amazing. But you get like your burrito and you get a drink. And guess what happens when you go over to the soda fountain? They have Mr. Pibb. And I'm like, why would you ruin something that's really good with that? Just give me Dr. Pepper, okay? Like that. But they look at it and they say, well, it's just as good. It's not. It's not the real thing. You see, we have to realize that there's only one Dr. Pepper. Everything else is an imitation that doesn't hold the weight. But it's the same. Guess what? It is the same with the gospel and Christ's return. And that is what Paul will argue today in our time. As he seeks to calm the angst and worry that has filled the hearts and minds of this group of people. And my hope is that, man, in our own lives, because we all experience moments of angst and worry, uh, even in moments of uh, being like false teaching or wondering, man, when's the end going to come? What is it going to look like? We can become a little anxious about it. But I hope that our anxiety is calm today and that we would set our gaze upon Jesus in the midst of so many things that seek to mimic and project hope, good news, and sustainability. Because at the end of the day, Christ is the solid rock for the believer. Christ is the solid rock upon which we stand. And as the old hymn would say, like all other ground is sinking sand. He is the one we have hope in now while longing for Him to return. Not some cheap imitation, but guess what? The enemy has no new tricks and that's what he's going to try to do. And so with that before us, let's look now at how Paul begins addressing this issue with the church by reading chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 and then the first part of verse 3. It says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Okay, so what I want to say up front, we haven't even gotten into the real heart of the passage today, is that this text today, it's a bit hard to follow. And it's also pretty hard to understand at times. Because it's going to bring with it a lot of unknowns. But you see, I believe that while we might not understand all the ins and outs regarding that which is laid before us, but also, like with what's laid before us, what we still have to wrestle with what's unknown, man, we're still going to receive what we need as God's people to live our lives with focus and purpose today. You see, I I think that that's important to note because as we're going to see in our time in the text, because this is a passage that can and has caused people to lose focus by trying to predict things rather than simply trusting God and living out their faith in Christ. 
And so we're going to see a lot of things, and there's going to be uh, some things that are shared, and we're going to look at, and we, we can know some of it, but there's also going to be unknowns. Paul's even going to say today, hey, remember I told you that? I, I spoke of these things. And so there's some things that Paul even told this church that we don't get in the text, and we just have to be okay with that. That what they needed then, maybe, because we didn't get it in the canon, in the Word of God, like we don't need it today. And we can rest in that. Because we still understand that, man, no, our hope is found in Christ. Our gaze is to be set on Jesus, and then we live from there. And so Paul, in turning to the second threat facing the church, he he begins by reminding them of what he's already taught them regarding the the return of the Lord. And there's really kind of two facets to this teaching. First, Paul says, look, hey, remember, like, if you want to recall what I addressed at length in the first letter. If you remember, if you were with us in our time in 1 Thessalonians, Paul spends at the end of chapter 4 and most of chapter 5 talking about Christ's return. You know, see, there were some that they had feared or begun to believe that, man, they had told them that Jesus was coming back, and yet those people had died. Man, do they have hope? And so Paul says, no, when Christ returned, the dead will rise followed by those who are alive, and they will be caught up with Christ in the air as he returns to earth to make all things new. Now again, this is there's a lot to that. There's a lot of debate about that. But again, I believe that this is not the rapture that has commonly been taught in most church contexts. Context, uh, but it, it, it is actually this picture of when Jesus returns, we meet with him and then we uh, come with him to earth as he makes all things new. It's not a leave for a while and then come back, okay? But I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs. If you want to, you can go back and listen if you'd like to, or we can talk about it. And so Paul lays this, he says, hey, I want you to remember what I talk about. Because what I'm going to talk about today, what he's going to talk about in his second letter, connects and aligns with what he's already shared. So Paul says this, and in the next part of the text that we'll look at, he says, look, I already taught these things to you. You see, what we find is that Paul's focus before addressing their concerns, and I love it, is Paul seeks to shepherd them by calming their fears. He begins with the word brothers, which could mean brother or sister. It's a familiar term that calls one to remember who they are in Christ and what family they belong to. But this is also a personal term that connects Paul's hearts to those believers. It would be like my uh, one of my children, if they're really anxious or worried, my job, what I should do, is I should say, hey, man, daddy's here. It's okay. I'm here. Remember, like, you're my son, and I'm proud of you. You're my daughter, and I'm proud of you. Like, no matter what's going on, like, I'm here. So Paul begins, he's saying, hey, remember, like, we're, we're family together. Like, you, you're not doing this alone. You're not, the struggle is real, but you're not alone in it. Remember your identity. Following that, Paul says, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. The wording here projects a call to not lose one's conviction or composure. He's saying, hey, look, all these things are being told and taught to you. And man, you're wrestling with it. But don't lose your composure. Don't lose your conviction. Do not stop believing what you know to be true. Essentially what Paul is saying is, hey, in the midst of the false teaching, see it for what it is. 
And don't let it draw you to lose the conviction of what you believe about the return of Jesus. I think as we hear that, like we all, like in different ways throughout life, like we all get this, right? Like have you ever had anything happen to you that makes you become shaken and alarmed in ways where it threatens you to lose your conviction and composure? You see, what I think is in those moments, because we all have them, we need people like Paul, which again is why I believe the church is so important. We need others to call us out of it and remind us, hey, you have nothing to fear. Remember, don't lose your conviction. Don't lose your conviction. No, rest in Jesus. And I think as we think about it, like we can do that in like really just random ways throughout the day. Like you ever need just like a, hey, get it together, right? Don't say that to somebody. But uh, like you just say, hey, snap out. Like don't, don't, don't go there. Like we need other people to step in and just tell us like, no, that, that's a lie. That's not the truth. Like remember who you are in Jesus. But it didn't even have to be like something that big of a deal. I remember one time when I was, uh, it was like early 2000s, computers hadn't been out that long. Uh, they had, but we just maybe didn't have the money to get one. Uh, and my grandparents finally got a computer. And at that point, desktops, like that was really the only thing you could buy at a decent price. And so they bought this really nice computer. And this, you had to have this really nice desk that went with it that you also had to purchase. And I put it together, I got it all set up, and and they had internet, they were ready to go, right? A couple of weeks later, I asked my grandma, I said, hey, how's the computer? And she said, well, I haven't really used it. I was like, well, is something broken? Is is it messed up? And she said, no, 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 like, it's over there, it's running. I said, well, did, like, what's wrong? And she said, well, Kyle, like... It makes me nervous. And it scares me. And I looked at her and like, probably I could have been more gracious and caring. But I said, what is it going to do to you? And she kind of looked. I was like, no, really, Grammy. Like, what is it going to do to you? It can't hurt you. Right? Like, unless, like, unless it falls on you, like, then that might, but that's just me not building the desk right. And so, but it can't hurt you. Like, what are you nervous and scared of? And she couldn't give an answer. And I said, don't you, don't, like, don't fear that thing. It's just a computer. And about five minutes later, she said, well, can you, can you show me how to do this? I was like, yeah, sure. And so I did it. And I don't think she really used it after that. Uh, but, like, it was that moment. It's like, you don't have to fear that. I can't tell you how many times, like, some of y'all know my story. Like, I struggle with anxiety. I've had seasons of depression throughout uh, my life. But I can't tell you how, how many times. That my wife Haley has looked at me in the midst of me like how it says in the text like that I'm easily and quickly shaken in mind. Where she'll say, okay, but what if it happens? I'm like, what are you talking No, what if, like that thing you're, you're so shaken about, what if it happens? And I'll say, well, then this could happen. Okay, well, what if that thing happens? Well, then this could happen. Okay, and she'll just lead me down until I get to the end. And I'm like, well, nothing happens. She's like, Exactly. You know, and and then I'm like, oh, yeah, but like I I need that in my life. You know, and for us, like life happens and life shakes us. But guess what? We need others. We need the body of Christ. Who will point us to Jesus. 
This is what Paul is reminding us and the church to whom he's writing to do before even diving into what he's going to address. What he's saying, he's saying, hey guys, like, look, look at me, but look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We're going to address what you're dealing with, but things have to be in their proper place. The issue needs to be placed under the authority of Jesus if we're going to address it in ways that actually bear fruit. It's like when you think about your life, like how often do you find yourself addressing issues, fears, and lies from the enemy with the wrong perspective? Primarily your perspective. And that's a, like, I, like, that's a crazy train to nowhere. You see, we are to set the truth before us, and then what we do is we are to allow it to interpret and bear the weight upon the situation. So that we're not quick to be shaken in mind. So Paul says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by any spirit, spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul's laid out, hey, don't, don't be, and then he starts, this is the area we're going to address. This is the area of concern. He addresses what's going on. Again, a group of false teachers have come forward and they've started to teach and even circulate this letter. They say, hey, this letter's from Paul. These are the words of Paul. And Paul's saying, no, 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 this is not me. What they're teaching is that Jesus has already come and they must have missed it. So again, you're out of luck. Don't worry about anything. He's already come. You see, what I love is that Paul addresses the source of the threat in three, three ways. He says, look, if a spirit comes to you and says this, it's wrong. Because you already know the teaching. He actually addresses this another way in Galatians chapter 1, where he says, man, if, even if an angel comes and proclaims to you a different gospel, let them be cursed. Next, he says a spoken word, which is, if teaching comes to you that teaches anything other than what you've already been taught. He says, these false teachers that are proclaiming this, they're false. Don't listen to them. He says also, I mean, if you receive a letter, he says this document doesn't come from me or any other leader in the church. Disregard it. Again, the focus of the false teaching was that Jesus had already come and they'd missed his return. And so Paul asserts this as false in the same way today that, man, uh, that we know, because we are to be a people that know the seasons and the times, although we don't know the day. Man, there have been many all throughout history that said, yeah, Jesus is going to come this day. Actually, the Jehovah's Witness, which is a group that uh, fronts as another sect of Christianity, but is not, their founder taught that the world would end in 1874. And then when that didn't come to pass, he changed the date to October 1st of 1914. But guess what? October 1st of 1914 came. He was dead. And the guy that came after him and said, well, actually, he misinterpreted. Jesus did come on that day. He just came invisibly and in secret. So he's already come. You see, what Paul is about to make an argument as to why this isn't true today and why it was not true then. But he plugs one more thing before doing that. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. You see, Paul understands while these modes of false teaching can be unsettling to the church, they have no power unless we trust in and allow them to deceive us. You see, a false teaching left unchecked will always bear the bad fruit of deception. 
you sit with false teaching long enough, which again is why we need the church so we can expose it and say, nope, that's not what the word says. They've taken parts and pieces of it, but it's not what this says. But if you sit with it long enough alone, man, there's a good chance that you might start believing it. And so we get this initial dress from Paul, but let's look now at how he seeks to combat the false teaching with the truth. So I'm going to read the rest of verse 3 through verse 12. Paul says this, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he, come, until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they might believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Alright, so how does Paul know that the teaching being spread is false? Well, Paul's claim is that Christ's return will not come until two things happen. And he says, hey, you're, you're in this uproar, you're in this wrestling, but I want to tell you that there's two things that are going to happen before Jesus returns. A massive rebellion against God and his bride along with the revealing of the man of lawlessness. So a rebellion and then the man of lawlessness will come. Now, Paul could have stopped there and said... These are the two things you need to watch for. Live your life for Jesus. Now let's get to chapter 3 where we're going to ask for you to pray for us. But he doesn't stop there. And the reason I believe he doesn't is because more must be shared than two signs of the return to combat the barrage of lies being spread. And so Paul gives a further, although not exhaustive, he goes further, but although exhaustive details of what this will look like. And what he's going to do and how we're going to kind of break this down is we're going to first look at what is the rebellion and who is rebelling. And then secondly, who is the man of lawlessness? What will he do? Why does it matter? And how shall we respond in light of what we know? Now, I want to just make a disclaimer. I'm not an expert. In in times at all. Uh, a lot of times I read it and it's just about as clear as mud. Okay? So I, I don't want to, I'm not going to sit up here and say, yeah, I know all the answers. Also, uh, that's a lot of verses and a lot of things are happening and I'm not going to go through every single part of it. I also know that, man, again, as I said in the first letter, this is open-handed and there's a lot of debate about it. But we're going to look at the rebellion and the man of lawlessness for the rest of our time. And so what is the rebellion and who is rebelling? So the word there for rebellion to describe uh, what's going on is apostasia, which can be translated as rebellion, apostasy, falling away, or betrayal. 
This great rebellion is likely the same one that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24, where he says that in the end, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because Jesus, and because Jesus says lawlessness will be increased, we're going to talk about this lawlessness more in a moment. He says the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so we see this is the rebellion. But guess what? This rebellion is not one, uh, uh, is not a rebellion against the government. Rather, it is a rebellion against Christian belief and practice by those who have claimed to be in the church. This is not people rebelling. This isn't even un, but like people outside that wanted nothing to do with the church saying, we're going to rebel against the church. Guess what? That's already happening. No, actually, I believe what Paul is saying, what Jesus is talking about, is he's saying, no, there will be many in the church who proclaim to be Christians, but are not. They'll begin to rebel. G.K. Beale argues that the point Paul is making is that the visible church community will become so apostate, will rebel in such ways that it will be dominantly filled with people who profess to be Christian, but are really not. So what do we do with that today? Well, I'm going to tell you what not to do first. Don't start looking around or interacting with people and being like, they're not. They're not. They're not, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying is saying this will come. We need to be aware of it. But what do we do today? Well, I think as we see glimpses, because I believe that nominalism, uh, being uh, Christian by name only, like it's predominant in church today. I show up, I'm a good person, I check my box, but I don't really know Jesus. Maybe today, like if I were to sit down with some of you in the room, that would be the case. If I were to press and ask questions about your faith, you would, you, there would be no faith. It would actually be, no, what's revealed is, man... I'm in open rebellion to the truth of God. You see, I believe what we're to do is we are to do two things. We're to be aware of it. But secondly, man, this is why like, you need to be deeply connected to the body of Christ. Solo belief. Solo belief is scary territory. That's like, man, you know, like if you read Ecclesiastes, it talks over and over again. Like, man, woe is the man who falls down and has no one to pick him back up. Like, woe is he who, who seeks and says, well, I'm just going to live my faith alone. Man, we were never called in that. I don't believe it's biblical. You have a faith that is your own. I'm not going to rhyme. Uh, but you never live faith alone. Like, we're called into community, right? Like, that's what we're called into. And so we need to be connected so that we can hold fast to the truth, so we can learn and submit ourselves as the body to the truth of Scripture and what it means for our lives. That we would exhort one another to hold fast to the Word, to work out our faith with fear and trembling, to have a soft heart towards the Word and to seek the things of the kingdom. And as God's community, we would not let each other turn cold. And if we see it, that we would address it and say, hey, look to Jesus. 
So we see the rebellion, what it is, who it's by, but also the next thing we see is a whole lot of stuff about this man of lawlessness, right? And so who is the man of lawlessness? Well, Paul gives him four names or titles to describe him. The first of which is man of lawlessness, which means that the word there is actually antinomian, which is one who is uncompromisingly hostile to the rule of law, particularly the rule of God's law and God's word. Secondly, the, the, the title or name that's given is son of destruction or, as the text says, the doomed one. The Hebrew word for this means that his destiny is ruin. So the doomed one, is dest- their, their destiny is ruin, both to create ruin, but also, like we're going to see in a moment, their life, like at the end, it's doomed. The third title we get is the enemy. The enemy who will oppose everything that is called God being committed to godlessness. And then lastly, the kind of the title or name we get is the climber who exalts himself over God in blatant self-promotion. Another name for this man of lawlessness that we see in Scripture is Antichrist. Which begs the question, who's the Antichrist, right? The answer to this question, I believe, is often what is focused on by many within the church when it comes to the end times. You're probably going to get two main factions when people that are really, really passionate about the end times, what are they doing? They're trying to figure out when it's coming and who's the Antichrist. And they will walk around and say, they are, they are, they are, they are. Every four years when a new president's in, they are, right? Even if it's on like their viewpoint, like after a month, they're like, I think they are. I think they are. You see, we, as God's people, are not uh, to be unaware. We are to have open eyes. We are to know. We are to be ready in season and out of season. We are to uh, see culture and the world around us for what it is. We're to know the time and the seasons we find ourselves in. But you see, I think for many the problem comes if and when you focus so much on the end, what will happen, where we are, who the Antichrist might be, that you don't live for Christ today. But also, I think the answer to the question, who is the Antichrist, is a complicated one. Because while we know and believe that ultimately the Antichrist, one Antichrist will come before Jesus returns and makes all things new. John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he says that while you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, he says this, many, let me say it again, many Antichrists have come. What? Like, what does it mean to say, well, the Antichrist is coming, but don't, like, you need to know many have already come. You see, throughout history, there have been many figures that have and do represent a shadow of what is to come. The word antichrist literally means one who is against Christ. And because the enemy, like, he has no tricks and all, since Lucifer rebelled, his rebellion was what? That he wanted to be God. He wanted to hold that position of authority. And so what he does is all throughout history, he has sought to mimic what God has done for his own selfish gain. 
right? And so we see all throughout history in the scriptures, you see there are shadows, people in scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, you go on and on, who are a shadow of what? Jesus that would come, right? In the same way, the enemy all throughout history has tried to mimic with his own shadows of, guess what, one who would come in the end. Daniel, I believe it's in chapter 7 or chapter 10, talks about this ruler who would come and who would rule, and he would be lawless. He would seek to sit and take the seat of authority, and he would do all these things and try to rule over, and he would promote godlessness. So Daniel, even in his writing and his prophesying, is talking about someone who was living then that would do these things. But guess what? In a moment, boom, they're snuffed out and they're gone. And all throughout history, you can point to, uh, man, such people. We see it all the time. People rise up and people say, well, yeah, they're the Antichrist. But we don't know, really, what we can see is, man, the fruit of life. So we don't know ultimately. We know that one is coming that will be it. But we also know all throughout history, the enemy has sought to destroy and mimic redemption. In his case, what he's seeking to do is destruction by having someone who is antichrist and uh, an oppositional leader. And so what will he do? Well, the first thing we see is that this antichrist is currently both then and I believe now, is being restrained because he hasn't come yet. He's being restrained. And some will say, well, who's he being restrained by? Well, ultimately we know that he's restrained. He's being restrained by God who is sovereign over all. You see, when unrestrained, the lawless one, Paul says, will be revealed. He says the lawless one will be revealed, but then in verse 8, I love, it's like as if Paul can't help himself to seek to encourage and remind them what's coming in the end. He says this lawless one's going to show up, but hey, it's the same one, listen, whom Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. The descriptor there is as if you have dust on your shoulder and you're just like, that's what Jesus will do to Satan. It's, we often talk about like the last battle. It's not going to be much of a battle. Because also what it says here is that when Jesus appears, that he will bring, he will be brought to nothing. He will be destroyed forever. So Paul writes this, but he says, but when he's revealed, he'll do what all the shadows tried to do, which is to mimic what Jesus has done. He will seek to be a Christ-like figure that is about destruction rather than restoration. He will seek the place of Christ and he will look to seat himself in authority in that place, but he will only come to ruin. The way he'll do it is by signs and wonders. By proclaiming that he is to be worshipped through wicked deception that will deceive those who refuse love and believe truth. Now, as we hear all this, again, this is like, uh, these are things you're like, man, like my brain hurts. What's going on? What do we do with it? Like, why does it matter? Like for the church today, why does this matter? And how should we respond in light of what we know? Well, here's a few ways. First, we need to be ready. But also, we need to remain focused on what God has said so that we might combat lies and false teaching. 
Secondly, don't become consumed with who, but rather proclaim Christ in word and deed to any and all who oppose Christ today. I think, man, that's one of the ways the, like the, the enemy wants it. Become consumed with those things. Look over here instead of focusing what Jesus called you to, which is to proclaim the good news to a lost and dying world. Also, for the church, don't lose focus on Jesus by looking to things that mimic the real thing. We as the church are called to know the real thing so well we can spot the fake. So I'm realizing lately that I'm getting older, okay? Uh, I try to deny it, but there's two things that have happened recently. One, during Christmas time, when we were shopping for things, I was walking around and I saw some dress socks. And in my mind and heart of hearts, I said, I desire those. And I was like, oh no, I'm getting older. Like, I desire the, like I want, I just want socks. Like just give me socks, Okay. But the other thing happened this morning when my brother-in-law said, hey, if you're talking about this text, you know, like most pastors who've been doing this a while, they'll talk about how those that seek in the FBI that seek to find counterfeits don't study the counterfeit. They study what? The real thing. And when he said that, I was like, oh, man, I've been doing this a long time. But it's still true. Those that seek to, they seek to snuff out the counterfeit, they want to know the real thing so well that there's, like when they see the fake, they can expose it immediately for what it is. Guess what? The fake's always changing. You can't lay a finger on it, but man, if you know the real thing, you can expose the fake really quickly. And so how do we do this? Well, few ways. One, man, we dive into the word in community. Dig into the local body and don't, like, not just showing up here. This is great. Like, be here. But this can't be your only time in the word for the week. Like, get into missional community. Be a part of Equip. Do those things so that you might, man, learn and, and not be deceived and not be quick to uh, be shaken in mind. Get discipled. Study the real. I think we also, we're called as God's people to look to Jesus. To cry out and pray that God would set our hearts on fire so we don't grow cold. So when things arise and things happen and false teaching spreads, that uh, when we see uh, pictures of what's to come, that we would not be alarmed when the world acts like the world, that we would set our gaze, that we would live our lives and let him who will kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, who will make him nothing at his appearance, that he will handle the rest. That, I believe, in the midst of just all this, that's our hope for today. That we would be aware, that we would know, but that we would set our gaze upon Jesus and we would continue living for the kingdom of God. That's what I want to invite you to today. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And what I'm going to do is I, here in a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And then two things are going to happen. One, um, those that are going to be presenting the elements for communion are going to come forward. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to Christ. And maybe today, like uh, hearing this, like maybe you're like, well, wait, wait. Like uh, it's kind of just been in name only. I don't know that I really know Jesus. 
But man, if you know, you're like, no, I've given my life to Jesus. He's changed, like he's changing my heart. I've received his grace. Man, we want to invite you to come and share in communion. If you haven't, man, we'd ask that you abstain. Not as a way to, to, to ostracize or cast you aside, but really just to say, hey, we want you to know what this means and experience the grace of what this brought about before you partake in it. And so we want to invite you to the table, whether you're a partner or not. Man, come, receive the elements. Take them back to your seat. And then I'm going to lead us as the body who remembers Jesus, sets our gaze upon Jesus and what Christ has done for us. So that no matter what goes on, no matter uh, who rises up, that man, he's the one that's going to take care of it all in the end. And then we're going to sing and we're going to rejoice um, the reality that Jesus is the king. And so if I can have those that are going to be uh, giving communion today to come forward. I'm going to pray. And when I get done praying, if you will just make your way, begin to make your way down the middle and go around the outside. And once everybody has received the elements, I will lead us in the sharing of communion. But Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, even in the unknown, even in uh, just weighty, heavy passages that... that, that um, yeah, that we look at and, and maybe we struggle with or struggle through. God, we would know that, that you are enough, that your word is good. And God, may we be a people that respond as a people who are ready, that are focused upon you, that, that aren't consumed with, uh, with anything other than rejoicing that you are risen, that you are reigning and proclaiming that to the world around us. That we would not lose focus on things that seek to mimic the real thing. But we would know that you are the real thing. I ask that you be with us now as we share in communion and sing the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.